0: Happiness versus Flourishing, episode 7. Welcome back to the podcast where we give you ideas on small changes you can make that can lead to a much more flourishing life. You can have a, a much more enjoyable life, have more meaning to your life as well. In today's episode, I speak with a man by the name of Ben Affia, who is a, an expert on communication and the use of language, and it's some quite interesting revelations um, that Ben sort of tells me about in today's episode, such as the tone of voice and how... The words we choose, the the massive difference it can make in appealing to to different generations and and much, much more. So that's coming up very soon. Why not subscribe to this uh, podcast Um, so you never miss an episode? We've got some really good guests coming up. Leave a review. The more reviews that we receive, the more people, the more other people get the opportunity to find out about the podcast. If you do like this episode or any of the uh, other previous episodes, why not share it with someone who you feel could, could get some real value from some of the things discussed. So right now, it is time for this week's show. Happy versus flourishing. And my guest today, Ben Affia. How are you, Ben?
1: I'm very good. Thanks, Tony. Thanks for having me on.
0: Um, well, I'm, and thank you for coming on. And you're based in, is it Nottingham?
1: I am indeed, yeah. West Bridgeford, south of Nottingham. And is
0: that where you hail from?
1: It's not. I'm a North Londoner, actually. I grew up in Pinnah. Um, and I wanted to get as far away from London as I possibly could. And I didn't get very far because I ended up at university in Reading. And then my first job took me to Nottingham. So it wasn't quite far enough. But this is where I stayed.
0: And, and so that intrigues me. Why Why was it that you wanted to get far away from London? What happened?
1: Well, you know, when you're a teenager and you feel a bit trapped, don't you? I mean, at that time, Mm. sort of late 80s, it was quite expensive to get into London. Mm. I don't think kids in those days had as much money as they do now. So Mm. to get the excitement of the city, if you're on the outskirts of London, it can be a little bit boring for a teenager, can't it? Mm. So I wanted to find life and clubs and excitement. Mm. And I thought Leeds, Manchester, Birmingham, somewhere else was where it was at.
0: So we, you, So you mentioned you went to university, mm. and when after leaving university, what, what happened then? What, what did you start to do?
1: Well, I started in sales. I remember applying for a lot of marketing jobs. That's what I wanted to do, and the only jobs I got into, got um, interviews for were sales jobs. Mm. So I ended up as a rep for Whitbread Beer company. Mm -hmm. traveling the Midlands, they took me up to Nottingham, traveling the Midlands selling beer to independent off licenses.
0: Yeah,
1: It sounds like fun, and it was for a few months, but then it got quite boring. It wasn't really the thing for me. Mm. So then I managed to get myself into into marketing jobs. I worked in recruitment briefly. Uh, I worked around a a range of different companies.
0: And was, was marketing what you did at uni? Was that what you wanted to get into?
1: It certainly wasn't actually, Tony, it was archaeology. (laughs) Yeah, I'm an archaeologist, so I was interested in how human beings evolved. Mm. And actually that does relate to marketing because it's really about psychology. Mm. So archaeology is trying to understand how human society evolved um, Mm. and how we learn to cooperate and compete effectively, Mm -hmm. how we learn to communicate with each other. How we learn to sell with each other. Mm -hmm. And so that's really what's sort of fed into the work that I do today.
0: And so so now you're sort of like an expert in communication, aren't you?
1: I am. And specifically with language. Mm -hmm. So I worked in marketing for a while and it was really uh, a step that I hadn't expected to make. But Boots the Chemist were looking for somebody to set up a a copywriting service Mm -hmm. for the design team internally And so the job was to coordinate writing for the whole business, Um, Mm -hmm. a huge team of designers, and they were doing doing everything from the annual report to tickets that you see on the shelves to packaging that you see at Christmas. And they needed some way of getting a consistent tone of voice Mm -hmm. uh, because people were using different agencies and different writers throughout the business. Mm. So I set up an internal service to find the best writers in the land and bring them back to work for Boots and some of them were already working for us and some of them were new Mm -hmm. but it was a really exciting job because i love meeting new people love talking to people love gathering great talent Mm -hmm. Uh, and that was really my job so that really got me specializing in language specifically and it got me good experience on working all kinds of different communications that an organization might produce Mm -hmm. And it's everything from what people say when they're in stores to the packaging on sandwiches Mm -hmm. right through to annual reviews and reporting to the city.
0: And you work with quite a wide range of clients now, don't you?
1: I do. So Boots made me redundant. I think it was 2004. So I've been going about 16 and a half years solo. Uh, and since then i have helped uh, bp uh, barclays vodafone google eon aviva companies that tend to be larger older companies who have large marketing teams and big customer service teams so they have lots of people representing the brand every day to their customers mm-hmm. and also some other known but smaller brands who want to get their voice right want to speak to their customers in a certain way so I work a lot with twinings. Um, I helped Ron Seal to work out what to say on the tin. Sadly, I <laughs> right. can't lay claim to their wonderful strap line does what it says on the tin. Um, mm. But 20 years after that campaign, I helped them to sort of rediscover a sense of their personality and work out what they wanted to say and how to say it.
0: Hmm. So are you working with copywriters or how, how, what is it, how does it work?
1: I am. Well, when I went solo, I actually started as a, as a copywriter specializing in brand tone of voice. Mm. Uh, and as that grew, um, I started recruiting a team of freelance copywriters uh, because I very quickly had more work that I can manage. And so to this day, I've worked with a team of freelancers mm. and I've considered hiring a team over the years. But what I learned was that individual writers are, have individual strengths. Mm-hmm. Some are good at long copies, some are good at short copies, some are great at health and beauty, some are good at financial stuff. So no one writer is good for every occasion. And so I've nurtured a team of talent with quite diverse experience. And then it's quite an intuitive process sometimes working out who's going to be right for what job. And partly that's to do with you know the chemistry they're likely to have with the client, uh, the technical information that's contained in the subject matter. So if it's financial services, I might need somebody who's got expertise in fund management. Um, And if it's health and beauty, you know, if it's twinings, I want people with experience of food. Mm -hmm. So it's quite a range and having a range of writers who are freelance means that I can get the right person on the job rather than having, you know, the overhead to pay and having to put somebody on a job who might not be appropriate.
0: Mm. And for, I mean, for people listening, they may be thinking, well, I mean, surely it's just a copywriter can write the copy and you know, what are you needed for? So, so where, you know, where, where is it you come in? What what is it you do with a copywriter?
1: For me, copywriting is really about culture. Mm-hmm. And that might sound a bit bizarre, but I'll explain. So in any organisation, especially a service organisation, the words that end up in things that customers see so Mm -hmm. advertising marketing emails web pages the language that ends up there is ultimately the result of things that are going on within the culture Mm -hmm. within the organization so the words that end up there depend on decisions that are made by leadership how those decisions are then interpreted around the organization how they turn into behavior and it's that behavior that then gets represented online now sometimes you get a bit of a gap so you may have brands who have great creative agencies and they're creating marketing and messages that are seen by the public that aren't necessarily linked up with the way that customer service are delivering service in the back in the back room, if you like. Mm-hmm. Although really they're the front, aren't they? Because they're the front of a house. Mm. So this is why I think of copywriting as being about culture, because what I'm trying to do is to connect up what's actually being delivered by your customer service people on the phone, in web chat, in your shops, with the promise that marketing is making in advertising and marketing.
0: Is it particular industries that you tend to focus on or is is that quite wide as well? Uh,
1: It tends to be larger companies who have a lot of people speaking for the brand every day. So if you think about companies like Vodafone, they have um, tens of thousands of people in the country. They have tens of thousands of people in India, in the contact centers. Uh, They have lots of people in stores. They have lots of people in marketing, lots of people in the customer service centers. Um, Mm -hmm. So the particular problem that I help solve is how does the culture help those people to give the very best service to customers day in, day out, and, you know, deliver on what, what the marketing promises. So they tend right. to be bigger, older companies that have this cultural challenge. You know, it's very hard to coordinate tens and tens of thousands of people. Mm. Um, having said that, you know, there are other brands. So I've mentioned Twinings, I've mentioned Ron Seal. So there are smaller brands that have smaller marketing teams. But even then, you may have a team of very passionate marketers and they may have difference, differences in opinion about how the brand should sound. And actually both those companies are examples that have teams of of very passionate people who've often worked there for a very long time and they have a very strong sense of who Twinings are, who Ron Seal are, and they don't necessarily always agree, in particular in different markets. So if you're looking after Twinings in China, for example, do you agree with how you speak to customers when you're marketing Twinings in Australia? because those audiences have slightly different needs. So the dance that I play, I suppose, is is tr- helping those people to coordinate and come to some agreement.
0: I, I like also what you said. I mean, I mean, I heard you speak last week, and you um, you were talking about the different tone of voice depending on the sort of um, age group. You know, So if it was a company aiming more at 20s and 30-year-olds, it would be different to a company aiming at 50, 60-year-olds.
1: Yeah, it's interesting. This is uh, a really hot topic at the moment. Um, So I just read an article a couple of weeks ago, and it played into the talk that you heard me give last week, that um, in WhatsApp, younger people tend to see full stops as being quite aggressive Hmm. and on text. So if you finish your sentence with a full stop. Now, if you're our kind of generation and older, well, Hmm. we learned that you finish sentences with full stops, don't you? So we're amused as to why people might see full stops as aggressive. And I think what's Mm. happened over the last 20 years since we've had the internet, that um, the internet, text, uh, web chat, those forms of language, they're a little bit more like speech than they are the traditional letters that you and I might have learnt at school. Mm. So you do have generational differences in the expectations around language. Mm. Uh, And I have the situation just you know just this week so my 16 year old has just started sixth form last week he had offers from other colleges and so I'm coaching him on emails back to those uh those other colleges to say you know thank you very much but I've taken an offer elsewhere Mm. um and so I want to coach him in professionalism Mm. uh how to craft an email so that it sounds polite so that you don't burn your bridges so that if something horrible goes wrong and you actually want to go to that college eventually they're still Mm -hmm. willing to take you yeah um but because a lot of young folk are learning language on the fly in text not even email i mean you know my children who are 14 and 16 don't even use email Mm. so they're learning it through text through snapchat through tiktok through whatsapp uh, and other platforms and I think mm. that is having a, an impact on the language that we're learning and so when those people hit professional life sometimes the standards are not the same as gen Xs and older
0: mm. and, and does that apply also then not simply to to punctuation but also to the spelling of words as well I guess
1: it is so I think that Shorthand, text shorthand, is creeping is creeping into all sorts of domains, and I know directors of marketing, directors of brand, who are sort of my main clients, mm. uh, pulling their hair out because they're hiring guys uh, straight out of school or straight out of university, and the, the what they consider a standard of language that they're using. And remember, marketers are often responsible for the language that an organisation uses. You know, the standard is not what they would expect. And quite often I'm asked in to help address that. Mm. So is, it, is a, it is a bit of an issue. Um, but at the same time, I'm not a pedant by any means. I don't mm. think that language is a fixed thing. Language has always evolved. Mm. So the language that we used in Shakespearean time is not the language that we use now. Mm. Um because the norms do change and so while we need to be aware of how we're likely to be understood and how our message is likely to be received and that's really about thinking about your audience who's on the receiving end so there is some consideration for your audience I think also we need to bear in mind that language does evolve and it always has Hmm. language has always evolved but I do come across people who are really dead set on, you know, you should never use contractions like I will or you will to I'll or you'll. Mm. You should never start a sentence with and or but or because. Mm. But these things aren't rules. Yeah. These are actually matters of style.
0: Yeah.
1: Uh, and style is about a decision that an organisation or an individual takes about how they want to be perceived.
0: Mm. And how much... I'm wondering, as you were speaking then, something that was going through my mind is how much influence is there from other cultures, you know, especially with kind of Hollywood and and you know, various other countries. Is that impacting much?
1: I think there is. So, um, I mean, America in particular. So, American spellings are creeping in to our language, um, but that again has always happened. So, the English language, actually, I think. I believe is about 50% French in origin. Mm. So Mm. the Anglo-Saxon that we spoke in the run-up to 1066, when William the Conqueror landed and duffed up the locals and and took over. So he brought in in French, which Mm. is originated from Latin. And Mm. that brought in a whole load of words. And now they're a fundamental part of our language what's really interesting is about those sort of Latin origin words is that they tend to be the more formal words that we use in the professions and that we use in business. If we want to throw our weight around, if we want to swank our gravitas, if you like. So Mm -hmm. a lot of the work I do is to actually encourage people back towards the simpler Anglo-Saxon words that we actually trust more. So they tend to be the words that we associate with family, with friends, with love. So the simpler words that tend to be anglo-saxon in origin they're the ones that we trust more and so when organizations and when people try to dress their language up with longer words it's actually not trusted as much and I don't think people are aware of that
0: and when you say that are you and you say people would that be for all ages or more for younger
1: people it's for all ages absolutely so Absolutely. I think people who are older probably learn a more formal grammar and mm. have more formal standards. Although if you think about kids today, you know, I was part of a generation. If you grew up in the UK in the 70s and 80s, then we didn't learn grammar formally at school. Mm. So we don't have the terminology. I've had to learn that mm. since. Yeah. Whereas my kids are learning the detail of grammar. Yeah. And they can tell me more, you know, they know more of the definitions than I do. Um, mm. Does that make them better writers? I don't know. Mm. Um, but so there is a general generational difference, but there isn't a general generational difference in people trying to convey authority and power, I suppose. and And that's mm. what's revealed with these longer words. So when we're trying to be more formal, it's because we're trying to, show our authority, or sometimes it's because we want to push people around. Mm. And so quite often what I'm revealing, helping organizations to unpack and to understand is that they can be simple and they can be human and they can be warmer Mm. and they can be more conversational in their language and they can still have gravitas. Mm. And that really is an art. So to give you an example, I'm working with um, Aldermore Bank, who are a, a kind of a mid-tier bank of around 1,000 people. Uh, they're about 10 years old. And they've set out to disrupt, you know, the traditional old banks. Uh, when they brought me in a year ago, um, the, the, the gap that they'd noticed was that their, they knew that their service delivery was really good, uh, but that their letters were causing confusion. And so I looked at the language that was coming across in their communication, and I noticed that there was more of this formality, Mm. more of these longer words that were not necessarily clear to the broker audience and to customers directly. Yes. And so I've worked with them over the last year or so to help them to get in touch with who they really are and the service that they're genuinely delivering, which is excellent, mm. and to just reflect what's really going on in the culture, the behavior that's actually happening, and mm. help them reflect that accurately, in their letters and their emails and their web pages. And the idea behind that really is so that people can look after themselves as much as possible online. They can get the information they need and feel comfortable and confident that they're being looked after. And then when they actually need to talk to a human being, that those people are also equipped to have the right kind of empathetic conversations so that people feel well, well cared for. And, and recent history seems to be suggesting that they are, you know, that's working and that the the FCA, the regulator, is, is pleased with their direction.
0: Right. And what would you, I mean, for, you know, and you've been doing this, you say, what, since 2004 mm. um, on your own. So, what, can you think of any really bad, or any examples of really bad communication that any sort of major companies, industries have been using or have used?
1: Those examples are really all around us. Um, and I guess I could talk to a letter that I got um, from the bank that I am moving from, Santander. Mm-hmm. And I don't mind calling them out here because I actually wrote to them and said, you know, I've been with you for 15 years, and you send me a letter like this. Uh, So just so the listeners understand, I I won't read the letter out in detail, but it was a very cold, a very formal and frosty letter. I wanted to, I was uh, changing bookkeepers, so I wanted to remove a name from my account. So something that should be fairly simple, but requires security, understandably. Mm -hmm. Um, I had not managed to get anywhere through the messaging service through the website. I hadn't managed to do it through email. Eventually they sent me a letter um telling me what the process was, but incredibly formal tones. And mm. as a customer of fifteen years, I really didn't feel looked after. In fact I felt threatened because at one point the letter says, If you if this is not completed within twenty-one days, this case will be closed and mm. you will have to open another case. Yeah. So this was a full page of of almost legal language that felt quite threatening that maybe not feel looked after as a customer and I just thought you know what I'm gonna move I'm leaving (laughs) and so I'm moving to Starling so I think I'm probably people can recognize these letters can't they I'm sure we've all had them these emails these letters that feel less than friendly and I think that organizations and individuals sometimes aren't aware of how their tone's coming across. So it's not that people are deliberately trying to be mean, hmm. uh, although sometimes they are. So I was running a training day at a company that I won't mention uh, some years ago, and I had a team of debt collectors. Hmm. And we're encouraging them to use a more human, warmer tone. Yeah. And uh, one yo- quite young you know, a lady in her 20s said to me, Ben, I don't like this new warm tone. It's not me. Um, I'm not a particularly nice person. That's why I'm a debt collector. (laughs) (laughs) And I I have to say, I was absolutely staggered. I I don't know whether she adopted the tone in the end or not, but I I appreciated her honesty.
0: Yeah.
1: But mostly I don't think people are trying, you know, mostly people I I believe are trying to do a good job. They're trying to look Mm. after customers well. Um, They may be under stress in the organization, they may have a high workload, they may feel under pressure, but mostly people are trying to look after their customers, aren't they? Mm -hmm. It's just that the language that we learnt at school maybe, or that we learn through the culture of the organization, doesn't really lend itself to warmth and humanity and real human connection. But if there's one thing we've noticed, I think, through COVID is you know we we've we've all had these emails and these messages from the chief Exec of different companies saying these are the steps that we're taking to look after you as a customer uh, I've been collecting these actually in a slightly geeky way uh, I'd like to do an analysis of them at some point. I think a lot of them were pretty awful, and especially the organizations that hadn't been in touch for years so that you're you know that you're on a database somewhere suddenly out of the blue, you get an email from a company that you haven't heard on in heard from in years talking about what steps they're taking to protect their customers during COVID. Mm -hmm. And, you know, my, my, the feeling I get from that is look, you know, you haven't paid attention to me for a long time. Why am I going to pay attention to you now? You've neglected the relationship until this point. Why am I going to listen to listen to you? And then you write me two pages of waffle. Mm -hmm. I don't want to hear it. Mm -hmm. I mean, you know, I'm, I'm already overwhelmed with messages. Yeah. And I think this is something that people sort of forget when they're communicating. You know, the crux of communication is a connection between two human beings. When you're Mm -hmm. communicating with somebody, it's not just about the message you want to get across to them. It's about the state of mind they're in when they are receiving it, when they might receive that letter or get that email or read their webpage or see that tweet. Yeah. So what I'm trying to encourage people to do is, to think about what state of mind is somebody going to be in when they receive that message, but also what's going on for them. What are the big things on their mind? So if we think about the last week or so, kids have been going back to school. People, some people have been going back to work. Some may have been going back into offices. There's a lot of change mm. and there's a lot of confusion. Mm. And although we're starting to get used to wearing a mask and travelling and being out of the house... I think there's a level of background stress that this is causing, and that eats away to our attention. So we don't have as much attention to give to individual messages. So right at the moment, I think organizations and individuals need to be particularly aware of what state of mind people are in when they're receiving their message. Otherwise, it's not going to sink in. And we have to be careful with people's time, don't we?
0: Mm. And for quite a few listeners to this um, show are entrepreneurs, smaller businesses. So you, we've been talking so far. Often, you know, you're working with sort of big organisations. What would be the what advice would you suggest for people running their own small companies about thinking about tone of voice and, and so on in their communications?
1: Yeah. Well. I'm guessing that tone of voice for smaller businesses is, is low down on the list of priorities because you know, you're Mm. a, if you're an owner founder, then you're a finance director, you're a marketing director, a sales director, a production director, you've got a lot of hats. Mm. And so I can imagine that tone of voice doesn't come up the list very high. Mm. Um, But if you think of your organization of yourself, your presence in the world in the way of a brand, if you like, and the way I think of a brand is a brand is what somebody else thinks of you. Yeah. So what does somebody else think about you and how do they describe you when you're not in the room, when you're not there? Mm. That's how I think of brand. So if you think about all the things that we do within a business and all the behavior and the communication that comes out of a business, when we talk to our staff, when we talk to our collaborators, when we talk to our customers, our clients, all of those points of contact are opportunities to build that brand or destroy that brand potentially. Mm. And we're all instinctively aware of this, aren't we? You know, when you go to your local butcher, they give you personal service. They have a little bit of time for you. They have a bit of a conversation and you like going there rather than a supermarket because you feel looked after. They're not thinking about it necessarily as that they're building a brand, but that's what they're doing. So any small business is in the business of branding and that's simply the impression that you leave your customers with. And so if if communication is important to you, either in speech and in writing, and I can't for a moment think of a business that wouldn't need to communicate in any way. Mm. uh, I guess if you're a manufacturer, you may have a very small number of clients that you know personally, but you're not communicating more widely. So, your need to think about communication is less. But if you have customers, if you have a range of clients, then you're communicating all the time. Hmm. And so the language that you use in those communications really matters. Hmm. So earlier on in the podcast, I talked about culture. And although in in a small business, you may not think about having a culture in a formal way, you do have a culture and that culture leaks out to your staff and it leaks out to your customers and your clients. And I suppose you could define culture as your values, things that you believe in, the things that you consistently do. And so what I help an organization to do is just to become more conscious of what those things are. Um, And to give you an example, let's say you have a value of trustworthy. So you want to be seen as trustworthy. What business doesn't? All all businesses trade on trust, of course. But let's say you wanted to be more aware and communicate trust. What I help an organization to do is think, well, if I want to be trustworthy, how might that sound? Mm. And ways that you can sound trustworthy might be to um, get rid of your industry jargon, perhaps, if you're talking to general customers. Mm. So think about the language that your organization will understand. And if you speak in their language, you're more likely to be trusted because you've thought about that communication from their perspective. You might want to use what I think of as active language. So to say what you're going to do for your customer rather than what will be done to them. So the letter that I got from Santander was very passive. Hmm. Uh, And a simple example that I use when I'm, delivering training is uh, if you see the text um, a letter will be sent Mm. a letter will be sent now you don't know in that sentence who's sending the letter Mm. so there's no sense of responsibility but if you flip that round and say um, we'll send you a letter or even I'll send you a letter you then have much more certainty in that sentence it's clear who's writing it who's reading it and what you're going to do for them. So there's Mm. much more sense of ownership Mm. and that gives your customers a sense of trust from you. Mm. So this is what I encourage organizations to do, to think about what it is they want to convey about their organization. What's that? What are their values? What are their beliefs? What do they stand for? And then how you might reflect that in language. And then Mm. I give them all sorts of individual tools like the active language, uh, In this sentence, um, you'll notice I contracted. I will write to you to I'll write to you. So if I want to appear more friendly, I'll rather than I will helps you to do that. It helps you sound a little bit more conversational. Many Mm. people of a certain generation at school learned that contractions are not appropriate in in business language. Mm. But it's very hard to be human and conversational without a few of them. Mm. And all sorts of other techniques like using shorter sentences, uh, telling stories, uh, explaining Mm. more about your service and being specific so that people have a sense of certainty about what you're Mm. going to do and what you're going to offer. So small organizations can think about this as much as large, might not be the top of the list of priorities. And it's something that also some people do very instinctively. Uh, I've worked with for many, many years with an accountant and uh, maybe 10 years ago I was looking for an accountant and I I was I was not a financially savvy business manager at the time and I wanted Mm. somebody who would help me understand my books better and actually over 10 years or so we've we've educated each we've taught each other so she's taught me to understand my accounts but I've also helped her to write in a more human way and not like an accountant Mm. and the real breakthrough I think a few years ago was when she sent me my monthly report and the report said profit and loss or how much have you made this month and Mm -hmm. I just thought I've really got a breakthrough there because she's translated the accountancy jargon of profit and loss to how much have you made yeah the sorts of language that I understand as a as a business manager now I know what a profit and loss is but I'd rather know how much have I made or how much have I lost
0: yeah yeah the um when you again when you were talking just now I was thinking I don't know why, the the quote by George Bernard Shaw came to mind, the uh, single biggest problem in, in communication is the illusion that it has taken place.
1: Absolutely, um, absolutely.
0: And the amount of people who cause themselves problems because of the communication they're using, and they can't see that.
1: No. And I think this is um, normal. I think it's actually very difficult to make yourself consciously aware of what's going on for another human being and to make sure your messages hit home, unless you're standing in front of them. So it's obvious, you know, we do this naturally. It's instinctive Mm -hmm. behavior when we are talking to somebody and you can read their face, you can read their body language. And as conversation unfolds, you have a sense of whether they've heard you. Mm -hmm. Uh, The problem is when you're putting things in text or whether you're, when you're talking over the phone, because you've got a step in between the communication and you're not getting immediate feedback. Yeah. So many of the organizations I work with and don't work with will be churning out communication that's not hitting the mark. Mm. And I think marketers will typically, tic- typically expect relatively low response rates to the marketing that they send out. Yeah. Um, and so when I'm training teams of marketers, I'm encouraging them to really delve into understanding what's going on for a customer. And one mm. of the tricks that we use as copywriters is to imagine one person, one individual, one individual person. Mm. And sometimes people find this quite hard to get their head rounds because they think, well, I'm, I'm communicating, you know, I'm, I'm on Instagram. I'm sending messages to thousands and thousands of people. Mm. So I'm not sending it to one person, but the trick that copywriters use is to imagine one person. Mm. And when you have one person in mind, you can start to have more empathy. Um, the, off-quoted world's greatest investor, Warren Buffett, um, is renowned for having his uh, aging sisters in mind when he writes his annual letter to shareholders. Mm. And his sisters know very little about finance. They're not in the industry. And he imagines them in front of him when he's crafting his words. And that means his letter to shareholders is much more accessible than the average annual report. And we can all use this trick. We can all imagine one customer Quite often when I'm writing uh, maybe an email or a blog post or something, I'll imagine one of my clients, somebody who I know well and are probably quite fond of because I've I've known many of my clients for many years, and I have them in mind and I think about what's going on for them. So I might Mm. imagine Claire, for example. I know she's got two young kids, that they might just be going to school and preschool. Uh, She's got a long commute. She might not be commuting at, at the moment. I know that her husband... Also has a bit, her husband has a business um, and running any business is a roller coaster. So uh, she's got a lot going on. She's also got a senior role at a telecoms company. So she's got a lot on on her mind. So if I'm writing to her, I want to make sure that what I'm writing is something that she's going to find useful, uh, that's helpful, that expresses empathy for her situation. So as a communicator, it's my job to make sure that my message reaches her. Mm. It's not her job to absorb it, if that makes sense. And I think that's our job, all, all of us as communicators. You know, even in personal life, if you think about, you know, if I think about sending emails to my dad and he, who's 77, um, and he's not particularly into social media or email, and sometimes it can take him a couple of weeks to come back to me. Well, you and mm. I are probably used to, replying to emails within 24 hours or less Mm. uh but you know a different generation that you know he's he's more used to sending letters
0: businesses are recognizing the the importance of family in their staff and so i'm wondering if there if that has affected communication in any way
1: I think, I think it is, and I think that um, the virus actually has is probably going to uh, be the push for quite a lot of change. So if mm-hmm. you think about when you're on Zoom calls, um, I mean, I, I would very rarely Zoom with clients before COVID. Mm-hmm. Um, they would stick to phone or prefer face-to-face. Um, yeah. But as soon as everybody's using video, then immediately you're, you're literally in people's dining room or kitchen or front room. Mm. yeah. And so suddenly you're, rev- you're seeing a part of people's life that's much more personal. Mm. And I think that that is actually encouraging less, you know, that's encouraging less formality in business relationships. Mm. Um, and inevitably it has to, Uh, within organizations because leaders now are having to think about the total context rather than just what an employee does when they're on the job Yeah, because um, everybody's been in a time of stress leaders have had to handle their own stress as well as have empathy for their staff's stress so that they can enable and help their people to keep doing their jobs and keep looking after their customers Mm. so I do think there's going to be a change. I'm not seeing any evidence immediately, but I I am seeing more enlightened companies being much more flexible. And we're hearing many organizations are, uh, well, some are allowing, uh, are giving people the option. I think Facebook has said that they're allowing people to work from home permanently and that's Mm -hmm. open to everybody. Mm -hmm. Um, I know some of my clients are having people coming back into the office, um, but Others have the option of working at home much more. And so because there are less formal lines of communication and things have gone more digital, you know, people are messaging through, through Teams, through Slack. Um, I think that there's an inevitable formality, uh, informality to some of those forms of communication. So I'm, I'm, I'm hopeful, actually. I th- I'm hoping that this period is going to make our communication as a whole much more human much more personal, Mm. much more considered, more empathetic. And, you know, my strapline for many years has been that I help companies to be more human. So this is, you know, in a way, the world's catching up with what I've been preaching for a long time.
0: Mm. And it's funny how in times of turmoil, there are uh, often a lot of actually good changes come from, from that. It doesn't seem so at the time, but when you look back a few years later,
1: Absolutely. Well, you know, I'm very much in the change business, although, you know, my business is language. um, Language really is about culture. And so it is about change. Mm. And change is very difficult for people because generally in organizations, change is done to us or historically has been done to us. And it doesn't tend to work. I think a PwC survey some years ago said that eight out of 10 change interventions, change programs in large organizations fail. Mm. And that's a staggering rate of failure uh, when you think about the money and the time and the effort that is put into these programs. Yeah. What's really interesting about language is that language is something that we all use. And so it's a very subtle tool for change. Mm. Um, but that doesn't mean that people don't have you know, don't feel defensive because the language that we use is very much a part of our personality. Yeah. And quite often I found, I find that, you know, it's more unusual to find that people have a professional personality that's more formal. And so the writing is more formal and a personal person, personality when they're mm-hmm. talking to their friends, to their family, when, when they're messaging. And that tends to be different. Uh, and it's, very rarely that I've found people whose you know, personal personality, if that makes sense, with the people they trust with friends and family, is the same as their business persona. Uh, but some people are, are like that. There is a good match between the two, and, but that's quite rare. So what I've been trying to do really for the last 20 years or so is encourage people to bring those two things closer, to be themselves, more themselves at work. Mm. and And I think it can be done. I think we can have that level of gravitas it 's about having confidence, and I think people are less are more formal in their language when they don 't feel confident mm. so a lot of it is about confidence, and part of it is the confident that 's the confidence that their organization gives them and how confident they feel about their team, their colleagues, their product, their service so um, but as you say, I think times of change are times when in times of turmoil are times when change can happen more rapidly. Uh, Mm. People's resistance is lower because I think people are accepting that things are going to be different. You know, it's taken a few months, but you know, everybody understands that things, some things are going to have to be different, Mm. but I do think also organizations are seeing this as an opportunity to switch up their relationship and to change how they behave with their staff so that their staff can behave differently with their customers. So I'm, Mm. I'm hopeful.
0: Yeah, it'll be fascinating to see where, how things are in, say, a couple of years' time.
1: I think it would be good to, uh, I think I should be capturing language from before COVID mm. and capture it from, as you say, a couple of years down and, and put a piece of research together. That's mm. given me a brilliant idea. I'm going to do that. <laughs> Thank you, that could be a, That could be a future <laughs> TED talk. I think it could, actually. Actually, that's a really interesting idea. Mm. Quickly makes a note. Yeah. Yeah. I think it's going to bring, it's it's bringing a lot of change and I think, um, you know, we're being seen more, aren't we? So because we're on video, because we are, we're messaging in different ways, we're having to make sure that our message gets through, uh, we're having to be much more considered and considerate. Mm -hmm. Um, and I hope that makes us more considerate as a nation, as a, as a globe. Yeah, Yeah. Um, because I genuinely believe that most people want the best for each other and for themselves. Mm. Mm. And if this can be a time to encourage more human behavior, more humanity, more connection, mm. um, then, then I'm, I'm here to encourage that.
0: And and from what I, I know of you, Ben, and, and certainly in some of the things you've been saying over the last sort of half an hour or so, um, I get the impression that you're much more about, um, the importance of, of having a good life rather than just chasing as much money as you can get.
1: Absolutely. Yeah. To be fair, I, I've, I've always, that's always been my approach, always been my view. Um, when I started my business, you know, I always wanted a business. Uh, it mm. took me a long time to work out what it should be. The mm-hmm. job that I did at boots exposed me to the profession of language and business, I suppose, which I wasn't really exposed to before, uh, it happened to fit English was always my strongest subject at school, and i 'd sort of forgotten that that was a skill mm. that I had um, and I loved doing it. I found I really enjoyed the work, but more than mm. that, I enjoyed working with writers uh, in general. I found that writers were lovely people to work with, and so mm. collaborating them with them was a, a great thing mm. uh, so I felt like I'd, I definitely felt like i 'd found my niche found an area of work that could be very fulfilling in terms of the practicalities of it, you know, the doing of it, but also the relationships that it would stimulate. And so when I, uh, when I was made redundant from boots and went solo, I vowed to myself that I would only take on projects that I could personally enjoy. Um, mm-hmm. because that way I would do my best work.
0: Yeah. Uh,
1: if I resented the work, you, you're never going to do your best work. If you resent the work, if you don't like it, mm-hmm. um, And that I would only work with people I want to work with, people. And so Mm. many of the writers that I work with, many of the trainers, the facilitators, the culture change specialists have become good friends. And I've worked with many of those people for 15 or more years. Uh, So those relationships are are friend relationships as much as business relationships and they're relationships that fill me up. The work Mm. itself, you know, I'm 16 and nearly 16 and a half years into this sort of freelance career. Mm -hmm. And, and I would say, I think in the last year I've done the best work of my career. Mm
0: -hmm.
1: And that's because I think I've, I've, I'm constantly focusing on what new things I can learn, how I can build more skills so that I can do better work so that I can have more impact with it. And each project for a client is an opportunity for me to develop new skills, learn new stuff and apply it to a new situation because every situation is, is different. Mm. and so it really is very exciting um Mm. the the work I've done with Aldermore over the last year has been working very closely with a team of 20 champions from across the business Mm. and those people have become like friends uh I was heading up to Manchester to work with them every couple of weeks and got to know them all very well and so yes I'm I'm paid money to do that work um and the client gets a huge amount of value from, from the work. But more importantly for me, it's incredibly satisfying. It's incredibly fulfilling. Um, mm. And I feel like I'm do, doing the best work of my career, which is why I pl- I'm not really planning to retire. <laughs> I've got a way to go yet, but I, I want to carry on because it's stimulating. It forces me to learn new things. And I suppose you know, one of my strongest values is about learning. Hmm. as I know it is for you. It's hmm. about personal development. And if I'm learning and growing, then I think I'm living a good life. And as long as it pays enough, I'm happy with that.
0: And you mentioned about a good life. So what, what are your thoughts on things like relaxation and play and sort of areas along those lines?
1: They are quite conflicted, actually. <laughs> um I do think I I find it very important to relax. You know, the work can be incredibly intense at times, very stressful. So Mm. I do need an antidote to that. And my main, well, my two main tools are swimming. Uh, I swim with a club uh, several several times a week. And just being in the pool with other people and training for an hour, I I come out Mm. relaxed. And I do a lot of gardening. Um, Gardening and listening to music Mm. um, at the weekend so those are the things that help relax me. Play, I said I'm conflicted. I, I struggle with play. I used to be a gamer, and since my children came along, I, I think I sort of felt, where in my life is there space for games when you have small mm. children around the place? Um, mm. So I suppose play, for me, is something that I try to build into my work. Mm. And when I'm running workshops, that's play you know, it's work as well and it can be stressful and I need to recover from it. Um, but more often than not, it's play. Mm. Um, so for me, play is doing stuff with people, which obviously is more challenging at the moment. Mm. Um, so I do think I, I found very early on in my freelance career that balancing work and rest was crucial because when you are trying to deliver creatively, uh, I just found you could never know, you never could, could never really guarantee when you might come up with an answer, especially yeah. when you're writing and you're creating mm-hmm. something that didn't exist before. Yeah. Um, by, by definition, that's a very uncertain place to be because if you've got a deadline um, and something to deliver and the client's expecting something of you and you don't know when you can produce, you have to be able to manage that energy very carefully. So mm-hmm. I always nap in the afternoon. I have a 20-minute power nap every afternoon, unless things are very, very intense. Mm-hmm. I swim most evenings in the week. If I've got a deadline or a speech to deliver, I don't expect too much of myself the next day. I have an admin day. Mm. So I'm very conscious of the rhythm of energy. And I think when I was younger, I wasn't so aware of that. You, you know, as many of us are, I just I just worked. Mm. I just worked and played hard and would crash out. But yeah. you can't carry carry on with that as you get into middle age. So uh...
0: mm. yeah. Well Ben if if people want to find out more about you and your you know, your workshops and your speaking and, and so on, where, where would they go to?
1: Well, uh, my website is benafia.com, so that's B E N A F I A dot com. Mm-hmm. So that's the main site. I also have a a links site, which summarizes kind of my most current thinking. And that's uh, links, which is L I I N K S dot C O forward slash Benafia.com B E N A F I A.com.
0: Okay. And, and before we finish, is there any, um, books that you would recommend to people for whatever whether it be business or personal or or fiction or whatever
1: you know there's an interesting thing I learned very early on in my writing career which was that um, great writing takes good reading so if you want Mm. to improve yourself as a writer then reading fiction and Mm. any fiction helps because I think what fiction does is it helps you to put yourself in the place of other people and to empathize with them more. So it develops empathy and it helps your understanding of people and that helps you to become a better communicator. So fiction in general, but actually I don't have any books specifically on language, but one seminal book for me was um, actually Getting Things Done Mm. by David Allen. Yeah, Um, I first read that. I don't know, 15 years ago, and it changed my life. I was somebody who would change my to-do list system every six months, and I could never settle. Mm -hmm. David Allen helped me to understand my priorities, put them in some sort of order, and create a trusted system so that when the world is throwing itself at you, you can capture Mm -hmm. it, put it in the right place, and you know you're not going to miss stuff. So it really has been a key to my success, I think.
0: Mm Hmm. Well, Ben, it's been a, it's been great chatting to you for the last hour. So, thank you for your time and and for the um, yeah the great wisdom that you
1: shared with the listeners. Thank you very much for having me, Tony. It's been an absolute pleasure.
0: Next week, episode eight is with Dr. Linda Shaw, who's a neuroscientist, and we're going to learn about a number of things how our brain affects many of the things that we do. It's learning how to embrace change, meditation, consciousness um, the different myths about the brain that exist that we're often told, for example, we only use 10% of the brain and there's many other myths that are debunked next week. in next week's episode when we speak with Dr. Linda Shaw Hope you've enjoyed this week's show please do share it with anyone who you feel could get some real value from some of the uh, information that Ben shared with us why not subscribe so more people get to well so you get the podcast on a regular basis and if you leave a review so more people get to find out about the show hope you have a great week